Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. This is the 86th interview in my AA Recovery Interviews podcast series and features one of my longtime friends, Jerry R. I've attended literally thousands of AA meetings with Jerry since we first met nearly 30 years ago. We've also spent a significant amount of time together outside the rooms. Like many old AA friends I've interviewed for this podcast series, I felt like I knew Jerry's story pretty well but was surprised to learn new details about him that enriched my understanding of him both before and during his life in sobriety. Growing up in Brooklyn, New York, Jerry's road to utter ruin began with intravenous drug use at 15. Living as a heroin addict for the next 10 years, his sordid lifestyle supported his addiction until he was able to stop heroin through using methadone for the next 10 years. With his life spiraling out of control after two decades as a dope addict, Jerry was finally able to get off the drugs thanks to vodka. Unfortunately, drinking upwards of two quarts of vodka a day confirmed how out of control his alcoholic life had actually become. By the time Jerry found AA in early 1990, he entered his local AA club a broken and desperate man. Fortunately, the members of that club gathered around him and showed him through tough love the work that he would need to do in the program to stay sober. With little faith that Alcoholics Anonymous would work, Jerry did what was asked, including attending the men's meeting in which I first met him. Frankly, it took me a while to get used to this guy with the gravelly voice and crude New York accent, but eventually his story melted my heart and we became very close friends. He stayed sober the entirety of our friendship. Jerry's life in sobriety has always been chock full of meetings and service work, mostly at his home AA club. I've seen him face some very difficult situations over the years with the kind of hope and perseverance that genuinely inspire other people. He never hesitates to welcome newcomers and those returning from a slip. His booming laugh and conversation manifests the joy Jerry gleans from sobriety and is a healthy invitation for others to share his mirth and his enthusiasm for the program. I'm always glad when I see Jerry in a meeting, and though I'm usually sure I know what he's going to say on any given topic, I never tire of hearing it. His relaxed and jocular way of relating his experiences in sobriety is steeped in hopefulness and wisdom. His absolute assurance that AA works, if you work it, comes through loud and clear every time he's called on in a meeting. I think you'll get a meaningful kick out of my interview with Jerry R., and invite you to gather up others to listen to this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Prepare yourself to be both entertained and enlightened over the next hour by the words of my close friend and AA brother, Jerry R. I'm an alcoholic. My name's Jerry. Hi, Jerry. Thanks so much for being on AA Recovery Interviews. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah, you're one of the guys I've been wanting to interview for a long time because you're one of my oldest friends here. And what was really cool about doing this this evening is that you and I were just in a meeting together. And it's one of the gifts that you and I have shared over the years, week after week after week, month after month, year after year. And they're mounting up, aren't they? Yeah, they, they, they really are. And it was a really good meeting. Um, what was interesting about it was it was kind of a tribute meeting. We don't have very many of those, but it was a tribute meeting to... Wiley H., who was a regular in a lot of meetings that the men here in the room tonight went to in the early years. He was just a beautiful man, and it was so cool to hear people have their different reminiscences about him. Now, you've been sober now 32 years? 32 in January. So your sobriety date is? January 16th of 1990. My last drink was January 13th. That's the night I came to and said a prayer to a God I never believed in. And the compulsion was removed before I got off my knees. And that was at the end, I mean, that was at the end of how many years of using and drinking? I started when I, my mother walked into my bedroom when I was 15 or 16 and I had a syringe of heroin in my arm, so, and I got sober at 42, so whatever the math is. (laughs) That's a long time. Yeah. What do you recall about your your childhood that might have given some foresight to what you would deal with in, in later years? There was nothing about it that really 
gave me any inkling because when I when we were re I was really young. We lived in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and my dad wasn't a drunk then. Mm -hmm. And I found out years later that his mother died when he was like mm -hmm. seven years old, and his father just walked out and left. They never came back. He just left the apartment that they were living in in New Jersey, and he never came back. Huh. And so he he'd been fighting for his uh -huh. life all his life, you know. Went to some orphanages, lived uh, with an uncle, I think, who uh, wrote a book called The Detective way back when. And then he joined a, uh, it was a mercenary group that went to Spain to fight against Franco. They were called the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. That was the name of the book. My dad had a couple of paragraphs in the book of stuff that he had written and all that. We moved to Brooklyn, and that's when his drinking really started. I mean... He tried to drown, drown my younger brother in a bathtub once, and my older brother was alive then, so we were able to pull him off. He tried to strangle a dog that we had. How old were you when this was going on? Eight, seven, seven, eight years old. That must have been pretty traumatic for you to have to see. I remember one time we, uh, he was taking us for a ride on the ferry to Staten Island, and my younger brother, he picked him up and held him over the side of the ferry. <laughs> and, of course, my brother's oh, screaming. Geez. You know, my dad thought it was funny. You know, uh, and my mom divorced him when I was about eight or nine. And he would come over on my birthdays and stuff like that. And we'd go out and I just would follow him around from one bar to another. We'd go to Chinatown, the Lower East Side and stuff like that. But they were not um, happy experiences. And he ended up living on the Bowery, like in doorways. He was one of those guys that would run out and clean your windshield with greasy old newspapers oh. and hope to get some money for a drink. And he got sick, and he went into Bellevue Hospital and just dropped dead in the lobby. And we got a phone call, and my mom had to go down and identify the body, and I didn't want her to go by herself. So I went with her, and I was 15. I was probably 16 then. And they go into the morgue, and there's a one wall's all window. They lower the window down, and his body's on it with a blanket up to his neck. We walk up and said, yes, that's him. It went up, and that was the last we ever heard. You know, it was done. And then we went home. What an experience to have to have when you're... Well, 15, you know, it's not like you were eight when that happened. I was already shooting heroin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious about that. When did you first try heroin? Well, I didn't drink. I saw what alcohol had done to my father, so I said, I'm never going to drink. This is, look what happened to him. But drugs seemed like a viable oh, okay. alternative to uh -huh. me, yeah. you know, so we were smoking pot. And the other friends of mine in that group did not get into uh, heroin. They smoked the pot. Sometimes they would take pills, but we got into everything. I had another group of friends that I would run with, and we would shoot speed and mix the two. I mean, we, whatever it was. It's funny. I uh, I would come into AA, and I hear talk people talking about blacking out, and I said, "Well, I never blacked out." They said, "Jerry, didn't you tell me you'd leave?" I used to have an old three fifty six Porsche. Uh huh. And uh, I was 16 or 17 years old, and I'd leave the house on a Sunday morning. Next thing I knew, I was in Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> From New York you know? to Vermont? <laughs> From New York to Vermont. I would take a couple of syringes of heroin, I had, and I would shoot, shoot up while driving down the highway. And then, you know, 6, 7 o'clock at night, I'd turn around, and the gas stations were closed. I, so I'd pull into the gas stations, and back then is when they had the little rubber hoses that would ding, ding when you ran over them. So I took those hoses apart. And I'd find, and I'd pull up next to cars that were parked in the gas station. I would just suck and siphon gas out of the cars <laughs> to put in my car to get home. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah. And of course, back then nobody had locking gas caps. So, uh, right about the time you got started with drugs, did you go to heroin right away, or did you kind of lead, lead up to that with other? No, I, you lead up to it with uh, uh, marijuana and then some secondals and tuminols and stuff like that. What were you chasing? in taking those things? Or were you just keeping up with the crowd? I think I was keeping up with the crowd and I wanted to be accepted by them. I mean, in the very beginning, I didn't know what to do. They would shoot me up themselves. Mm. I had really good friends. They'd <laughs> stick the needles in my arms and, you good know. Guys. yeah. And, uh, and that's how it started. About four or five of my friends were in a band. And they would get gigs like to play in Boston. Mm -hmm. And one of my friends who was killed in a car accident a few years, well, 10 or 15 years later, but his mother had a big Mercury station wagon. Mm -hmm. And we'd take her station wagon and load it with the equipment and drive up to Boston. And I was the driver. And we'd have, you know, amphetamine, and we'd be snorting that. For, and that was the first time I'd ever had that. And we were up for like three days, <laughs> you know. Uh, boy, those were the days. 
What kind of feeling is that? Uh, I mean, I, 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 I did amphetamine in my time. I never did heroin, but I'm curious, what was the feeling? Euphoria. Euphoria. Just complete euphoria? And the heroin was like a return to the womb. It was warm, it was dark, and it always accepted you. Mm. You know, and you could just do that, and it didn't matter what the hell was going on. Were you cognizant of what you were doing? I mean, somebody's under the influence of heroin. Do they know what they're doing, or are they impaired? What's, what's that like? No, I think I was aware of what I was doing because, uh, but the main thing is with the heroin, you didn't do much. You'd just nod out uh -huh. for a while, you know, and you'd go into like a dreamland. And it was, uh, like I said, the return, it was warm, it was safe, you know, it didn't matter what was going on around you. Yeah. Because you were all right. So you were doing this in high school? Yeah, late, late high school, I guess, end of high school. And then, uh, I went to Kingsborough Community College in Brooklyn, uh -huh. and I was never in class because I was always out doing drugs, mm. you know. And I may, was able to maintain for a while, uh, but I was out of control probably from 29 to about uh, 42 when I got sober. Wow. I was drinking two quarts of vodka every day. I was uh, shooting drugs and uh, pills and, I mean, whatever it was there. You know, my, jug of ch my drug of choice was... What do you got? What do you got? <laughs> <laughs> you know. That was mine. That was mine as well. So from 29 to 42, so that's 13 years. But I started when I was 15 or 16. But it wasn't like it was in the, that 29 to 42. That was just maniacal. Maniacal. So did you ever get through community college or did you ever earn any sort of uh, education? No degree. No degrees? A lot of street smarts, but they don't pay you for that. They don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And I guess consequently, from all of that stuff, there was a lot of fear in my life. From what? What was the fear about? The same old shit, not measuring up, not being good enough, afraid they'll find out. There were two guys that were my best friends growing up, and they both died within two months of each other about three or four years ago. Uh, one with the Parkinson's, and the other one just had all kinds of crap sure. wrong with him. But the other guy had friends that he would get drugs from in Greenwich Village, mm -hmm. and we ended up... Um, breaking into their house and robbing them, taking they were marijuana. What was funny is I had I had borrowed my mother's Volkswagen, mm -hmm. and we drive over there with four of us. And I'm a big guy, but one of the other guys is much bigger than me. Still is <laughs> bigger town. Mm -hmm. And I double park and I let them out to go into the house. And I wanted to go in the house too because I wanted to be the man. And they said, well, no, you need to stay here. So I left them. You know, I said, fuck this, I'm going. And I drive away, and I get about two blocks away, and they said, Jerry, what the hell are you doing? They're going to kill you when they come out. So I go around the block real quick, and I come back, and they're walking down the street. One guy's got two shopping bags full of marijuana in each one of them. Another one's got stereo speakers <laughs> under his arms. Another one's got the amplifier and stuff like that. And I pull over. I said, get in, get in. What the? F I said, I was double parked. The cop told me I had to move. Uh -huh. So I just went around the block. <laughs> you know, so I got away with it. But we ended up back then, that was like 69. Yeah. We had six or $7,000 worth of cash that we found in the house. And I don't know how many, four or five pounds of marijuana. Wow. And then the, you know, the speakers and the amps and stuff like that. So we felt it was a good haul. The money we spent, the most of the drugs, we just split up and did ourselves. Mm-hmm. So this is right around Vietnam, too. What, what happened with, did you get drafted or anything happened? I went down the first time, but I was allergic to wool. Allergic to wool. And that was what the uniforms were made out of. I think I got a 1Y, which is, it says 1Y, but it's really a six-month deferment. So I had to go back down in six months, and they just made me 4F. Yeah, they just wanted to make sure you were really allergic to the wool, huh? Yeah, and it's funny, when I was down there, there was another guy came in there, that I used to do drugs with mm -hmm. where I lived. And he comes in there and he's got high pink suede boots on. <laughs> he's got a machete and he's got an airline bag full of acorns <laughs> over his shoulder. So they you know, immediately, well, this guy needs to see the shrink. <laughs> he goes into the dock. He's telling me this lady. He said, the doc says, what's in the bag? So he dumps a box, the whole bag full of acorns all over the doctor's desk. He said, where do you get those? He said, oh, my girlfriend and I go to the graveyards at night. And I picked them, <laughs> you know, and that was like 64, 65. So it was easy to get out in those years. Yeah. Wow. You know, like another friend of mine, he was the first one, I think, whatever his birthday was. But that was the seventh of whatever month he uh -huh. was. He was the first or second number that was called. And 
they took one look at him and, and t- spoke to him, and they didn't want him either. You know, we were all fucked up. So by then, you were definitely a junkie? Yeah, because I used to have these guys that weren't the, the mu- musicians that I hung around with, but there was another whole group that were in a Puerto Rican gang that uh-huh. I was friendly with. This gang, and one of the guys that was the president of them was at Coney Island with his girlfriend, and he got jumped by these other guys and beat up. So a couple of nights later, we all pile into this guy's car. So we found out where they hung out. We went out there. I thought we were going to go fight them. Oh, and all of a sudden, man. rifles start coming out of the window, and they start firing into the crowd. You know, luckily, we found out that there were no deaths, a lot of wounded people. But And we got away, and nothing ever happened oh. with that. But um, it was pretty crazy. That was in Brooklyn, yeah. So tell me about the effects that heroin was having on you. Was there a point at which, after you started using, were there points at which you said, I got to stop this, or was it balls to the wall until you you stopped and, and got some help? It, it was just the opposite. It wasn't, I got to stop, I got to get more. Really? It was the, oh yeah. I mean, every day, is you pull, take the needle out of your arm and the search starts again for the next hit. For a while there, another, the big guy, he and I got a job working for a, um, it's a little place down in Greenwich Village and they had these big racks and they, they made leather belts and the leather wristbands and uh-huh. all that. And we'd go there and we'd fill up the racks with all these things and then go out to sell them, you know, and bring them, bring them the money. So we would go in there and we'd bunch, put a bunch around our waists <laughs> and shit like that, you yeah. know. And we'd get on the subway with them and we'd go to Brooklyn and we'd, we'd sell one off the rack and we'd keep the money and take a one off our waist to put it up on the rack <laughs> so it was still there, you know. And then we'd sell some of theirs too, but there was a way to get drug money. You had a real racket going then. Huh? Yeah. I mean, we were kids, late teens. So is it safe to say that you, your prospects weren't very bright at that point? No, because there was a place called the Promenade, which was a walkway at the end of Brooklyn Heights overlooking... Uh, you could see the Statue of Liberty to the left. We watched him build the World Trade Center. The Brooklyn Bridge was to the mm-hmm. right. And the pro- promenade, when I was about 16 or 15, it became full of gay guys walking and cruising, you know. So one of the guys would go down there and pick up a gay guy. Mm-hmm. And as they're walking back, all of a sudden they come around a corner and there's five of us and we jump and beat the shit out of him and take his money. Oh, my gosh. You know, and that's how we had money for drugs. Seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> yeah, and it, we look back on it about how cool we were. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was just a completely distorted view of the world that we had, I think. So what happens as you emerge from your teenage years into your 20s? Is it just more of the same? It was more of the same, but I, I'd work. I got a job working on cars up there. I, I lived in Brooklyn Heights, and I got this job working out in Sheepshead Bay. And I was probably 25 or 26 then. And mm. one day, I'm getting off the exit on the uh, Belt Parkway to go out. Some idiot in front of me got off the wrong exit. So instead of continuing through and getting on the entrance, he backs up the exit. And I'm coming off at like 80 miles an hour. So I tried to avoid him, and I didn't. And I slapped the left front wheel. And so I bent up all the suspension and all that stuff. I used to go to this restaurant for lunch, and I went there that day, and I was telling the waitress about it. And she says, oh, my boyfriend Mark has the same car you do, and he's got a lot of parts. So anyway, we became friends, and he was in the plumber's union up there. Uh-huh. And they were sending a lot of them down to Texas to work as pipe fitters or something at the refineries. So he talked me into coming with him. Huh. So... And so we left New York Halloween Day, 1975. And by Christmas, he was back up there. He hated. He ended up marrying that waitress. He hated it here. We were living in Pasadena, and he was working at the refinery. Yeah. I was living in Pasadena, but I was working at a, a, a Texaco station. So that at least brought you down to Texas. Yeah, that's what got me to Texas. So it brought you down to Texas being a heroin addict. In the interim, before we left, I got off heroin and I was on a methadone maintenance program. And that was started in about 70 or 71 and it had just come out. What made you do that? What made you get off heroin to go on to methadone? Was it a desire to stop? I guess because it stopped a lot of the illegal activities. Because, you know, I go to a methadone clinic, I go in there and they give me the bottles and, you know. But even that, you go in there on Monday and drink a bottle. They give you a bottle to take home for Tuesday and Wednesday, and you go back Thursday. So Monday when I'd leave, I'd drink Tuesday's bottle and half a Wednesday's bottle right then. Uh-huh. 
now they put you on 30 or 40 milligrams. I was on 180 milligrams a day because they didn't know. it was. You go in to talk to the doctor once a week, and he says, how you doing? I said, oh, doc, you know, about 2 or 3 in the morning, I feel like electricity is running through my body, and, I, and they up your dose. <laughs> so you knew the system. That's curious, though, that methadone was always seen as the way out and off of heroin, but you must have had some desire. You mentioned about the illegality of it. You didn't. That's always hanging over the heroin act, yeah. that you're going to get caught. But even if you don't get caught, Howard, it's, it's the lifestyle that you lead. The yeah. stealing, the manipulating, the lying and, and cheating, you know. It's like you, I'll go get the heroin and I'll bring it back and we'll do it up. So you go get the heroin and you take a little scrimp off this one, a little scrimp off that one, and you get back to your buddies. Right. And all the heroin's not there. You've got these other little, you know. It sounds like a lot of work. Oh, it's, it's a full-time job, man. <laughs> <laughs> So you started the methadone program up in New York up in before New York. you came down? Yeah. So how many years total had you been on heroin? Probably somewhere around eight or nine years, I guess, or 10 years. And I got on the methadone around 71. Came down here in 75. At first, they transferred me from New York down to St. Joseph's Hospital sure. where I could get it. But then this other place opened up. And when I went there, they hooked me up with a counselor. And, you know, after a year or two of talking with him, we started lowering the dosage. Huh. You know, uh, he'd cut me back every couple of weeks, 20 or 30 milligrams. I was still on 180. And, he, yeah. and then when I got down to about 30 milligrams, I just never went back. You just went off it? I just went off it and went on my merry way and started drinking al you know, alcohol and all that other stuff. So it was 10 years of being a heroin addict followed by... 10 years of methadone. So 20 years of your life was spent in, in that environment. Right. And then... I probably drank heavily. F I only drank heavily for about two or three years. So did you go right to the vodka and the hard liquor off of methadone, or had you been doing the liquor along with the methadone? No, what happened was I was working at the Mercedes dealer, uh -huh. and I'm I'm good at that, you know. So a lot of customers, Jerry, thanks for taking care of my car, and they give me bottles of booze as uh -huh. a thank you. So I had like 60, 65, 70 bottles of booze at the house. I didn't drink. Because I was doing cocaine, I was doing barbiturates, you know, the um, tuminols and secondols and smoking pot and all that stuff, and cocaine. And, uh, I mean, I could put my fingers up my nostrils and touch. It's all burned out in the center. Sure. You know, because what would happen is I would 10, 11 o'clock at night, I'd say, well, I got to go to bed. So I'd clean the screen, clean the mirror, put the cocaine away and get in bed, turn, on the, turn out the light. Ten minutes later, jump out of bed, turn on the light, bring it all back out again and start doing it again. And then before I know it, it's seven o'clock in the morning and I got to go to work. So I'd call in sick. I said, I can't make it today. Mm -hmm. They fired me. I I'd called in sick 56 days one year. <laughs> well, you guys are touchy. <laughs> <laughs> and they ended up hiring me back when I got sober. Did they? Yeah. But what happened was, so there was nothing to stop the drinking. So I was drinking around the clock and doing drugs around the clock. And what happened was in uh, January 13th of 1990, I mean, I'd drink, pass out, would come to drink. Pass, that was my daily routine. I would take drugs and drink until I passed out. And I had passed out and come to at about 4 a.m. And something happened that made me, I fell on my knees and my prayer was, God, I don't believe you're up there. Mm -hmm. But if you are, please stop the misery. I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. And the compulsion to drink and drug was removed before I got off my knees, and I've never had anything since then, since mm -hmm. that one prayer on my knees. Three days later on the 16th is when I went into AA. So that was a spiritual experience for you? It didn't feel very spiritual. It just stopped, you know? Just stopped. What did you attribute it to at the time? That your prayer had been answered or just a big old coincidence? Just a big old, yeah, I didn't, th I didn't think God entered into it at all. You stop take drinking two quarts of vodka a day and all the drugs, you get a little rough there after the first, you know. <laughs> so you had stopped the methadone, but you were still doing the cocaine and the weed and the barbiturates. And the, and then the alcohol. And then the alcohol. You're still doing all this together. Yeah, I was, I was laying in bed and I said, man, I need to go to sleep. I bet if I took a couple of sips of one of those bottles in there, I'd be able to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. And in two months, I was drinking two quarts a day. You know, I start, and I did that for about two and a half years, maybe. Were you able to function at work? No. But I remember situations where a customer would complain about something, this one in particular, complain about the seatbelt, and then it wouldn't go around them, and they couldn't figure it out. And uh, 
the service advisor that was handling it was up there with the manager and the customer. I walked up to him. I said to the manager, Lamar, you need some help? He said, yeah. I said, okay, what you got to do is push this button and lift it up on the pillar, which will raise the whole seatbelt, and then just pull it out. And the lady, they tried, and they said, ah, solve my problem. Thanks so much. <laughs> you know, why they didn't know that, I don't understand. But um, So you still had some functionality. Yeah. Were you under the influence all the time at work? Oh, yeah. You were. I had a triple beam scales in the locker rooms. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I would take these cars. We had the QC, quality control, these cars after they were worked on. Mm -hmm. And I'd call my Coke connection. And so I would drive down there and get ounces of Coke, come back to the dealership, park the car, turn the paperwork in, and go upstairs to the locker rooms where my scale was. And I'd start laying, you know, weighing out grams and stuff like that. Oh and I'd go back into the shop. Dinner's served. You know, and then you couldn't find anybody, any mechanics at their bays. They were all up in line at the locker rooms. Yeah. But I'd go up to a mechanic and say, hey, man, we need to do this. He says, hey, you, you need a bump? And he'd open up his toolbox. And if he replaced a sun visor, well, on the sun visors, they had a mirror. You'd take the slide out and expose the mirror. So he'd have the mirror exposed with co rails of cocaine right there in the shop. He goes, you want a bump? And he'd give me a straw or rolled up dollar bill or something. We just So how many of the guys at this dealership were, were actively using when you were still? Oh, I bet at least 15 or 20. Really? There was one guy, and he was a gopher for the dealership. If a customer needed a ride, he'd drive yeah. them and stuff yeah. like that. But he also did the state inspections. And one day he was at the state inspections on a car, and I was at the service desk a little. He goes, hey, you want a bump? And he throws the cocaine across the room. <laughs> you know, and I catch it, and I go upstairs and take a bump and come back and give it to him. But you'd go up to the, the technicians. at the, They'd open up the toolboxes. It was all laid out right there. It was crazy. While all this is going on, are you feeling? How are you feeling about yourself? Back then, the truth is, I probably don't know because I never got in touch with my feelings because I was always loaded, twenty-four hours a day. I was always on something. To hear your story right now, it sounds like you went from one kind of euphoria to the next, to the next, to the next. And I'm wondering, was that just the nature of the the using that you were doing? Are those things that you just never really got in touch with? Or were those things going on under the surface and you were able to get rid of them with the drugs? I don't think I got rid of them. I was able to live in spite of them is more what it was. Yeah. I mean, I was loaded on something every day, all day long. So how did you ever get to know the real Jerry? I don't think I did. I, I think that's started when I said that prayer and the compulsion to drink and drug because I for 25 years I, I wasn't sober it lived maybe even more I don't know don't most people die from what you were doing I'm amazed at my because I know people that have had convulsions and go into hospitals because they almost I've never had anything like that nothing so you've got an ironclad constitution two quarts of vodka a day it never faced me Every day. It was controlled drinking. I never drank more than two quarts. <laughs> what kind of feedback were you getting from your mother and you have just the one brother? Well, I had two brothers at the time. My older brother was killed in a car accident when I was uh, 14, I think. So did your mother and your brother, did they have any idea of what you were doing or were you not in touch enough for them to know what was going on? Did you ever reach out to them for help? And not at that stage, yeah. because um, my brother was away at college, and he'd come home, we'd shoot heroin together, mm -hmm. you know. And then, of course, but he was only home for three or four days, and then he'd go back to school. He was more into LSD and all that stuff, you know. So how long did he continue to use before he stopped? I don't know. I wasn't concerned about him. I mean, he was living in Maine, and then that's when the heroin stopped. I, I went to live on a commune in Arkansas. In like 1969, mm -hmm. I guess. And I was shooting heroin in the airplane on the flight down to uh, Little Rock. And then that friend was going to school in, in uh, Little Rock. And he drove me to the commune. Mm -hmm. I stopped. I, well, I didn't drink then anyway, but they had no alcohol. They drank coffee and smoked cigarettes like fiends there, but there was no drugs. There was no alcohol or anything like that. And after a while, uh, they were getting a lot of people that were j coming there, and they needed a commitment from me that I was going to stay or else they needed the room. We ran a, um, a lodge on the top of the tallest mountain in the Ozarks, Mount Magazine, 
And it was a, a lodge with a dinner theater and ran a restaurant and there was cabins there and they would rent it out. And the part I loved was we had a big truck to go down with a boiler to get water to bring it up to supply the place. But when we ran out of firewood, we would take the boiler off and drive the truck down and chop down trees and load these big trees. <laughs> and then we'd go up there and cut them up and just, you know, axes and, and, and sledgehammers and split the logs. I love that. Right. Love that, but I wasn't drink. I wasn't doing drugs there. So you were able to stop while you were there. I was off everything. I don't think I had started the methadone yet, though. When they said you either have to make a commitment to stay, and I said, well, I can't do that, so I'm gone. And I left, and I got back into my old way of life. Did they know that you were using at that time? Well, I wasn't using there, but they probably. The place was comprised of a lot of people that had bad backgrounds. And they just kind of cleaned up there. And it was really a wonderful place, you know. Um, we were all finite drops in the infinite ocean of all. <laughs> <laughs> so what was there about that that made you not want to stay? I wasn't done. It's probably the bottom line. I just wasn't done. Was the compulsion to use just coming back on you? Or what was that? What was going no, on? I really there? liked it there. I got hooked up with a woman there and... Uh, it was just a good bunch of people, and we did things, and uh, I guess I just wasn't done. You know, I felt this drawback to New York and the streets and all that stuff. So I went back there, and uh, I did it from 70 to about 75 when I left to come down to uh, Texas. So when you went back to New York is when you started the methadone. Yeah. So you were done with the heroin, and you left it at the commune. But you came back to, to New York to start the methadone and continued on the other things. Then you come down to Houston. You're still on the methadone. You're still doing the drugs, but you've added alcohol to it by this well, point. Well, I added the alcohol. I only drank for two or three years. Right. Uh, at the very end. Yeah, then. at the very end. Um, because I came to Texas in 75. I was already on the methadone. I got off the methadone in around 80 or 81. And um, I started drinking around... 86 or 87, because I was still, I was at the dealership, and I was, these bottles were accumulating over two or three years. Yeah, yeah. You know, it wasn't like I was getting 60 bottles a week. So what role did the drinking play in the slowing down with the drugs or the quitting the drugs? Were you trying to substitute one for the other, or were you doing them all concurrently? A little of both. I didn't start drinking to slow down the drugs. I started drinking to start drinking. I didn't think, well, if I drink, I don't have to do that, you know. I wanted it all. <laughs> so you were already in your late 20s at this point, weren't you? Yeah, I left New York when I was 27, and that was in 75. So, um, yeah, I was in my 30s, I guess, yeah. All of your 30s were the drug use. And then the alcohol in the late 30s. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete, unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. You end up in AA in 1990. Yeah. Tell me about what led up to that, to, to the actual process of coming into the program. What led up to that was that prayer stopping the drinking. Yeah. And I was really pissed because my prayer was to stop the misery. Uh, and he stopped the drinking, which made the misery that much worse because <laughs> I didn't have anything to take care of the misery, yeah. which is what I was using the alcohol for. And that's when I called uh, the suicide hotline mm -hmm. and they listened to me for about five minutes and said, oh, no, 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 you need to call. You need to go down to the council on alcohol and drug abuse because you've got an alcohol problem. Right. So I called them the next day. I had to call them three times because I couldn't find the place. Uh -huh. and I, you know, where, so I walk in there and they take one look at me and they said, oh, my God, you need to get into a treatment center <laughs> immediately. I said, no, I can't do that. Why not? I have a dog. <laughs> I can't leave yeah, my dog. Can't leave the dog. <laughs> 
So they asked me where I lived, and I told them, and they said, well, a couple of blocks from you is a AA club. Here, let me write down the address and the uh, suite number, and we suggest you go there. So what happened is I left there, and I drove right over to the AA club, terrified. You didn't want to go to treatment because you had a dog. That's what you told them. That, and it was the truth. And so they told you, so go to the AA club. And uh, I walked in there, and the people took a look at me, and they said, my God, you know, what's your name, sir? Have a seat. Let's get him, let, buy him a cup of coffee kind of thing and all that. And this was in early January? Of it was January 16th of 90. And they said, Jerry, let me tell you something, Jerry. You never, ever have to feel this way again if you don't want to. And the myriad of emotions, I was like elated, and you're fucking lying at the same time, uh -huh. you know, because yeah. I didn't believe that. I've always felt like this, you know, and I didn't know that there was another way to do it. Plus, the, the act of the two or three minutes from getting to your car to walking into that doorway was terrifying because as miserable as I was, what was wrong with me, I was familiar with and I knew it, yeah. you know. Now, this is the whole thing that they, they're intending to lay on me. I don't know anything about it. I don't want it, you know. So I walk in there, and uh, I go walk up to the coffee bar, and I said, uh, I need to sign up for AA. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, well, you don't sign up. I said, well, that's ridiculous. Who's in charge here? <laughs> and they said, nobody's in charge. Why don't you have a seat over there, sir, and somebody be with you in a minute. Uh -huh. So I go over, and I sit down, and this guy comes over, and um, he says, you need a desire chip. Come with me. And he took me in. There's no meeting going on or anything. He just took me up to the chips at the table in the meeting room and handed me a desire chip. I found out later that guy never drew a sober breath, but that's the only desire chip I ever had. But he was there for you at that point. But he was, he was there for me. And I stayed there all day long, and then there was a meeting. I think I got there after the 11 o'clock, so I went to the 6, and they started you know, who's first, day, blah, blah, blah. I right, raised my right, hand and all right. that, and they, they started talking about sponsorship. Mm -hmm. So I looked over next to me, and I just grabbed the arm of the guy next to me and told him he was going to be my sponsor. <laughs> that quickly? Yeah, the first day. He said, that's what I had to do, yeah. In five months, he fired me because I wouldn't do things in his time frame, and that was the best thing that could have ever happened. So you go in there your first day. The guy gives you a desire chip. The irony is that he never. He was not sober. He was not sober. You went to a meeting that day. And the meeting was on resentment. And I said, ah, finally, I found a place where people know what's important. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and then as I'm sitting there, I realized, wait a minute, these people are talking about getting rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go to a place that tells you how to refine them, <laughs> you know. Did that club have the the window shade steps and promises and traditions on it? Yeah. When you saw the steps hanging on the wall that first day or the first days at which you were, what were you thinking about all that? I didn't understand it, first of all. I mean, it didn't make any sense to me. How did you feel in the early days, in the early first number of weeks? Oh, terrified. And uh, the main fear is it's going to change everything I know and love in my mind. And also, it scared me because I don't understand what the, you know, what's going to happen to me kind of thing. Yeah. What are you guys trying to do to me? And, uh, and what's interesting is the second meeting I went to, the topic was God. Oh, and I got up and I walked out. Yeah. And old Ray came after me and he said, where are you going? Sir, I, I can't do this God stuff. I, you know, yeah. he said, Jerry, right? I said, yeah. He said, don't worry about God. God can take care of himself. Why don't yeah. you just turn around, come in, and sit down and listen? And that's what I did. And the club back then used to open at uh, about 8 in the morning, 8.30 in the morning. I would be there. They'd have to push me out of the way to unlock the door. Mm. I'd come in, and I'd sit there until the 11 o'clock meeting. And then uh, somebody would buy me some food because I had no money. And I stayed there until they closed at midnight. And they'd have to push me out and lock the door after me. You know, I mean, I'd just stay every day, all day. That's what I did. And then I'd go home and I'd get in the shower and I'd sit in the corner and let the hot water beat on me. And I'd sit there until I ran out of hot water. And then um, I'd throw a ball against the wall all night long and just, you know, shake. I just, I was nuts. And then I would walk the streets at three, four in the morning and just like find shit to kill the time until it was time to go back to the club. Now, this compulsion to use that had been lifted, you've said 
and I've heard you say this countless times in meetings over the years, I got off my knees. Before I got off my knees, it was removed, and it never came back. It has never come back. You're desperately attending the meeting over there when they open to when they close. You're going home. You have the shower scene. You have the ball scene. And then you're walking the streets three and four in the morning. How the heck did you keep from thinking about or having even the slightest compulsion about drinking? I don't know hmm. how I kept from doing it because all I was trying to do was not hurt because all the pain that I drank over was there. Yeah. And I didn't have the alcohol and the drugs to even it out or soften it, you know. So I just felt crazy, yeah, uh, useless, hopeless, and that there was no way out. You know, and uh, but the thought of a drink to solve those, it never, never occurred to me huh. to do this, something like that. And it's not like it came into me, well, no, God took that away. I don't know. You know, there was none of that. It just was not there. So about what point then did the realization that AA was going to do for you and AA was going to be the answer for you? Well, I think that was exactly what I talked about in the meeting with Wiley. Repetition right. breeds habit, and from habit, faith comes naturally. I would come there every day. I'd stay there all day, go to every meeting, and they call that lounge the half measures room. Well, that half measures room saved my life because there were people in there and out of there all day, you know, going to work. Let me stop and get a cup of coffee at the club, and, you know. So they got to know you pretty good, didn't they? Oh, yeah. And, then you know, you sit there, and if you're in the meetings, you hear people start to talk and share and say credit the change in their life to god yeah and i went from oh that's such a crock of shit you know but i saw them come in and they had the same tombstones in their eyes that i had in mine and i still have mine those in mine but they don't <laughs> you know <laughs> and they're crediting crediting god with making that bringing about that change so you were coming every day, but you weren't willing to do the work? At club, in the middle of the room, they had these poles. Yeah. And I would look for the seat that I was directly, the pole was between me and the leader. And every time somebody finished talking, I'd bend down to tie my loafers so I wouldn't get <laughs> called on. You know, I didn't, you know. Over time, it just, it started to sink in. And uh, this one sponsor that I grabbed his arm, he took me to the through the third step prayer. And we were at my house on our knees doing the prayer. And I started to shake and I started to sweat during that prayer, hmm. you know. And I looked at him like, what the fuck did you do to me, man? You know, but uh -huh. uh, the man that got off his knees was not the same man that knelt down. Something happened during that prayer that changed my life. And I think that was the doorway opening. How quickly did your behavior towards the program and your willingness to do the work change? Was it immediately or, or just gradually? I think it was gradually because he fired me shortly after that because I didn't do the fourth step in his time frame. Okay. I was at a meeting and I was, and I was thinking, I said, well, I got to get another sponsor. I'm either going to get Indian Paul. Yeah. To sponsor me because we were friends. We go to, I go into a meeting and he'd be sitting there and he'd go, Psst, this guy got nothing you need to hear. Let's go to breakfast. <laughs> and I go, okay, well, he's got 50 years sober. I'll go with him, you know. Uh -huh. So he was either going to be my sponsor. I went to the meeting and I said, it's either he or Charlie. And Indian Paul was in the meeting when I got there. And Charlie walked in like three minutes before the end of the meeting. And I asked Charlie to be my sponsor. And he was such a loving, he was an, uh, from Mississippi, uh, old electrician. But... Um, he was just so gentle and loving and uh sounds like a big turning point oh yeah i mean having he he would pick me up at my house in the morning he was an electrician i'd get in his van with him and we'd go on his service calls together wow and he would talk aa to me <laughs> you know uh day after day and it was like jerry give me a plus screwdriver phillips give me a minus it's a straight edge you know and uh he talked to me and he'd say Jerry, you know, I, th I think you're going to make it. And then he started talking to me about uh, the inventory. Uh -huh. And he, you know, would re relate it to goods on a shelf and how you rotate the stock and all this stuff. And when mm -hmm. it gets old, you bring it to the front and you sell that off and then you get new stuff. And, and then he brought me to that men's meeting years ago. That was the one where I first met you. Yeah, 30-something years ago. And I'd go there with him, and then we'd go out to eat afterwards, and it was uh, just the laughter. You were starting to become more enmeshed in the fellowship. I was letting the program in. 
yeah. which in turn let me out. Did it affect your willingness to do the steps and participate more? Well, you know, I had done the third step with that first sponsor. And then when it came time to do the fourth step, I bowed up and uh, I would ask for people, is there another outline I can look at besides this <laughs> one? You know, uh, somebody would say, well, Hel Hazleton has one. And, and they'd bring me that and I'd look at it. Oh, that's it. You know, and finally somebody came up to me and said, hey, asshole. You need an outline to explain the outline that's in the book? <laughs> God, <laughs> I've got a legal pad. Let's go to your house yeah, right now, yeah. and I'll lay it out for you, and I'll show you how to do it. And so he did that, and I didn't do it until Charlie, my sponsor, said, we're going to set a date to do the fifth step, and you better have it done by then. Wow. And I did. And you did. And I did, yeah. And uh, How thorough do you think you were in that first, fourth step? I think it was pretty thorough because— when I left there and I was driving home, I had a shit-eating grin on my face. I was elated inside. Hmm. Um, I felt free. What part of the process gave you that feeling? I think the sharing with him. Sharing with him. So these secrets were no longer secrets. Right. It made me feel free so I wasn't hiding thing, and that's when the weights lifted. Yeah. Yeah. And I could, it's like it's always in there trying to get out, but there was something keeping it buried inside of me where I was afraid to let it out. I didn't know how to let it out, and I, I just couldn't let it out, but it came out during that fifth step with, with uh, Charlie. I remember calling, we used to call him Radical Rays. He died a long time ago. In the big book, he tore out the pages of acceptance. He said, <laughs> I don't go along with that. I said, well, that's a form of acceptance, Ray. <laughs> What? <laughs> you got him. But when I when I called him and told him about it, he says, don't worry, Jerry, this too shall pass. <laughs> and it did. But yeah. the level that you come back down to from that high was miles above the level that I was before I did it. Yeah. So yours is actually a, a great story for people who are wondering about what effect a fourth step can have on them. And the third. And the third step, and, and then, of course, the fifth step, and then moving right into the steps after that. When it came to your eighth and ninth step, were you able to go back and revisit the fourth step list to come up with amends that you needed to make? How did you construct your eighth and ninth step? I don't know that I wrote a list. I think I was aware of who I had to make amends to. You were. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, my mother... <laughs> How, what, what did that look like? It was fine. I mean, I owed her money, and she said, no, you don't. And, uh, Jerry, I'm just glad that you're where you are now and not where you were then, you know. She'd call me in the morning, and I'd say, well, my sponsor's coming over to pick me up. And she said, how long is he sober? And I said, 18 years. And, she says, and he still has to go, huh? <laughs> was he not doing it right? <laughs> you know, I said, Mom, it's a way of life. And you were sober by this time how long? Maybe a year. I thought I was 15 months sober before I did the fourth step. And my friend, Dr. Bob, said, no, Jerry, you were about six months sober. Because what happened was this old guy, Troy, who used to be at the club, and he was an old man. And he was one of two master sergeants in World War II, you know. And he was a crotchety old fucker, you know. He said, you can do anything sober that you did on alcohol you can fuck fight and run a foot race <laughs> Great. just do it on old jay god damn it yeah, yeah and he was living in a um assisted living place and i had done the fourth and fifth step that weekend and the following mm -hmm. week on a monday or tuesday he asked if somebody could give him a ride to the place so i volunteered and when i came back my friend bob said did you just give uh, troy a ride I said, yeah. He said, did you do a fourth step and a fifth step? I said, yeah, this weekend, how'd you know? He said, you never would have given a ride before. <laughs> and I find myself, even today, reaching out to help people that are not in the program. That just, you know, when we are responsible. When anyone anywhere reaches out for help, I want the hand of AA okay, to be there. Yeah, and for that, I am responsible. Mm -hmm. And uh, I find myself helping people that um, 
need help, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it, it, I don't look for AA credentials and show me your last chip kind of shit. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I get that. You know, that. they need help. If you wouldn't mind, let's move forward from the early days of your program. And you've been sober now a long time. Earlier, I mentioned to you that one of the things I like to do with this podcast is to try and understand better what people have gone through and gotten through, the gifts that they've gotten, the challenges they've faced during their sobriety and manage to stay sober through and not just stay sober, but grow through. Would you mind just sharing a few of the things that have happened during your sobriety that were real challenges to you or real gifts to you? When I was five years sober, my mother was dying of cancer Yeah, in New York. And I went up to New York to be with her, mm -hmm. which wouldn't have happened if I wasn't sober. I just would not have made the trip. Um, I ended up laying in bed with her and holding her and telling her I loved her, which I've never done in my life yeah. with her, yeah. and carrying her to the bathroom so she could go to the bathroom, cleaning her up afterwards, oh. carrying her back to bed. And I'm not that guy, <laughs> you know? I was up there for about two months. I ended up losing the job I had here so I could stay with her. And then we ended up putting her, taking an ambulance and taking her to the airport and putting her on a plane and she flew down to live with my brother in Arkansas because he's a nurse practitioner and she died there. But that was a whole another story. But the whole evolution of that death is yeah. when somebody would call or come over and she spoke to them and said their goodbyes. The next time she called, she said, tell them I'm asleep. It's like she was circling the wagons and, and uh, you know, and when she was here, I drove my daughter up to Arkansas to see her. It was about uh, two or three weeks before Thanksgiving. Uh -huh. she had, my brother said she hadn't been out of bed in like a week and a half. She got out of bed. She had breakfast with us. She went back to bed, and she didn't get out Sunday. And we left Sunday night, and she died that Thursday. Hmm. You know, And that was like her final goodbye. So she got to see you and her, her granddaughter. Yeah. And then my daughter got pregnant at 14 or 15, 14, I think. And, you know, what I say in meetings, I say, you know, when they talk about the difference, I say, well, my mother died when I was five years sober. My daughter got pregnant at 13. I've been divorced and nothing bad's ever happened to me, <laughs> you know, because that's the truth. Yeah. Because what the program has done for me has allowed me to change the way I perceive life and what it is, you mm. know. Because before sobriety, I would be devastated by every one of them, but not for any one of the people, but for me. How can you put me through this? How can you make me, you know, that selfish and self-centeredness? Because the fourth and fifth step took care of a lot of the reasons that, would have, that I would have those reactions because I felt like I could never look anybody in the eye. I'd uh -huh. find a place between your eyes and focus on that. Because I felt if I could look in your eyes, you can look in mine. And if you looked at mine, you'd find out what's missing, that I'm not good enough, I'm not, you know, and all this negative shit that never existed anyway, except in my mind, which is really the only place it needed to exist for me to behave that way. Right. You know, it's my belief. Those are pretty severe events to happen. The, yeah. You know, because, I mean, I lost both my parents in sobriety. I remember. I, yeah, I've had some other real challenges. What does your program look like these days and in the last several years? It's the main thing in my life. I mean, it always is, always has been. I'm sober 32 and a half years, and I probably go to at least 10 meetings a week. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Some days I go to two. Well, obviously, some days I'll go to two. But like, um, okay, I was at the 11 this morning. I'm here I was here tonight. That's two meetings. So somebody out there who's maybe going to only a couple of meetings a week or maybe three or four says to you, why do you have to go to so many? Or, or what is it that you're getting out of the additional four or five meetings a week that I may be able to benefit from if I do the same thing? Do it and try it. Do it and try it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. You'll find out because it makes a difference. Do you find his fellowship that's behind all of that? Yeah. I mean, certain meetings, like Rose sober 40 plus years, he goes to as many meetings or more than I do. Yeah, meeting makers make it and are dedicated to going to meetings. Not only do they make it, but they make those meetings better because of their commitment to go all the time. And we saw in the meeting tonight a guy get a desire chip. I remember him when he first came in, 
And before the meeting, I said, I haven't seen you in a while because I forgot his name. And if I don't see people for a while. Is that the one that was cursing back there? No, no, no. The that was a different guy. But but the guy who I, I'm talking about, who was one of the two guys. Oh, the guy in the blue shirt. Yeah, right. So I said, where you been? He said, well, I, you know, I started to go to fewer and fewer meetings. And then I just kind of felt like I didn't want to go back. And inevitably, here he is getting a new desired chip. I mean, I don't ever want to get that close to the edge. I love living in the center of the program. I know you do, too. Well, it amazes me that people say that meetings don't keep me sober. No, why are you here 45 times a week? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and look at the ones. You take a, a uh, poll of the people that went out, the first thing they're going to say is, I stopped going to meetings. Bar none. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure there is some, but... The overwhelming majority is I stopped going to meetings was the first thing that happened. Right. Thinking that I'm sober this long, everything's fine, I don't really need it anymore. And, you know, that alcoholism pops up on your shoulder. Psst, come with me. You don't need this shit. It'll be different this time. And there's a part of us that wants to believe that. Yeah. You know, is what I think. Um, but I've never had that fucker pop up on my shoulder. You know? It's a beautiful way to live your life, I. I, I know that for sure. And I've had the opportunity to, to get to be close to you as you were going through a lot of the stuff you were going through. You've been a confidant of mine over the years for a number of different things that have gone on, as I have for you. Have you ever had any other issues with things that cropped up for you during your sobriety that you had to address, health issues or anything else that challenged you? I mean, from the IV uh, did, did you have hepatitis C at some point? Yeah. How did that affect you? It didn't affect me. I just went for some blood work, and somebody said they won't test you for hep C unless you ask them to check you. So uh, I don't know if it was because uh, the first time I did it, I got on that um, ribavirin and whatever that first thing was, and uh, my viral load was over 5 million. Hmm. And they said, well, you're a candidate for this, whatever. It was ribavirin and something. Mm -hmm. uh, the other one is the main drug. And after three months, they said, we're going to take you off, and it's not working. Well, you just said my viral load went from 5 million down to 1,900. The way I learned math, it's, wor <laughs> <laughs> it's working. Well, it's not. You should have been non-detectable at that point, but we can keep you on it. So another three months, it was down to 900. And they wanted to take me off again, and I said, no, no. And, uh, okay, we'll keep you on again. It was insurance is paying for them. What do they care, you know? So they kept me on it, and then another three months went by, and it was non-detectable. I said, see, so it worked. They said, yes, but we want to keep you on now for another six months and bombard you with it just to make sure it stays that way. So they did that, and I was non-detectable, non-detectable, non-detectable. Three months after I got off it, it was back up. Oh, no. And they didn't do anything. And then John told me about St. Luke's Liver Institute, and there was a new drug out that they were trying. Mm -hmm. And they were looking for people to guinea pigs. And they paid me $50 every time I went over there. And, it, you know, so I went there in two, two weeks. It was non-detectable. The whole thing was a 12-week deal. They said, you're cured after two or three weeks. She said, as long as you don't start sticking needles in your arms again. So I said, oh, so I can snort it now. I just... <laughs> You're a wise guy. <laughs> she, she slapped me. <laughs> what a wise guy. Is real? <laughs> so I can, I can snort it. I just can't shoot it anymore, right? That's one of the, that's one of the real victories for you then, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, she said I would still test positive because I have the antigen or whatever it is in there, but it's not... Um, it's not alive, I guess, is the word, and I can't transfer it, and I can't. I probably ought to have another test done, because that's been... It's been a while, hasn't it? Shit. How long has John been dead? Ten years? Seven, Seven or eight years now. So it was probably about eight or nine, ten years ago I did that. And in two weeks, I mean, it was wiped out. That had a big effect on a lot of people's lives, didn't it? Yeah. Because when I was on the interferon, that's what it was, ribavirin and interferon, I couldn't walk up a flight of steps when I was on that. I know that really beat you up, didn't it? It did. And, you know, like uh, Clay worked construction while he was on that. I don't know how he yeah, did it. I remember. I don't know what his cancer's doing. He almost died of cancer, too. Yeah, he was pretty sick there for a while. I, I don't know. I haven't talked to him in a while. As we get ready to wrap up here, I, I just wanted to ask you a question I like to ask a lot of guests. 
just because I think it calls for a little bit of introspection, and that is this. If you, knowing what you know today, and the life that you have and the understanding that you have about living life today sober in AA, and you could go back to the Jerry R. at any point in your life and talk to that man, which Jerry would you talk to? How old would he be and what situation was he in that would make you want to talk to him at that point? You know, it would almost have to be close to the end because I think if I spoke to the Jerry that was walking out the door to let his friend stick a needle in his arm, he wouldn't believe me, you know, because he hadn't started yet. That may have happened to you, but I know me and that's not going to happen to me. You know, I'm just not going to let mm -hmm. that kind of thing happen and use that excuse well into my years of using. But at the end, um, I would want to listen, but I don't know if I would be able to listen because the drugs would have mm -hmm. such a hold on me, mm -hmm. you know. Well, that's good information. I'll keep it stored away in case yeah, I need yeah. it <laughs> kind of thing. Son, you need it now. <laughs> but um, I think what I would try to do is impress upon them my outlook of, of the world today compared to your outlook today. Yeah. You know, when I'm talking to me at the towards the end, because everything was gloom and doom and, and misery. And... Um, I mean, I'm so poor I can't pay attention, <laughs> and it doesn't bother me. You know, there's, there's all these things going on in, in my life. You know, like I said before, uh, I would get so loaded that I would be afraid to go into work because they would fire me. So my solution was to call in sick <laughs> and just not go. Anyway. <laughs> and get get the, yeah. But the whole thing is the probability that me telling me then it would not yeah. sink in because they have no conception of what I'm talking about because they've never seen it. They've never experienced it. And as far as they know, it doesn't exist because that's what I thought. And one of the reasons I asked that question, because I think it's, it sheds a little light on how it is that we might deal with a newcomer who we find is kind of like we were back then. And, you know, I've seen you around new guys and newcomers and you're really very flat out with them. You're, you're very much no nonsense. And I think that that has a lot of impact on people. I think there have to be those people like you who are willing to tell people just how it is and not try and sugarcoat it too much. No, and then when you get their excuses, they say, oh, really? Yeah. How's that working for you? <laughs> and you can say that with sincerity because that man was you. Yeah, that's where I came from. No, I used to stick a needle in my arm seven, eight times a day. I would shoot heroin while I'm driving down the fucking freeway. The thing that, aside from the not drinking, it's the presence of a God in my life today, which was never there. And that's such a peaceful, um, warm all-encompassing feeling to finally feel fucking safe, you know? Yeah, that was something we, we hadn't really talked about too much was your your relationship with your higher power. How would What would you say about that? Today, I, I say, I don't get up and get on my knees and pray. I don't, you know, oh, the, the, read all of this spiritual stuff in the morning. I just know that... Um, some days I'll leave the house and I'll pull up at a stoplight in the car and I just sit back and I inhale and a smile comes over my face. I mean, literally, you know, and all's right with the world. And there's nothing that goes on in my life. To, there's things I want and things I tell myself I need, which are really wants, but um, I'm not devastated by the lack of them where everything used yeah. to devastate me. And I think a lot of that is God. Acceptance yeah. that, you know, I'm in his hands now and everything's going to be okay. What a beautiful sentiment. What a, what a really comforting, safe way to believe and feel. And I don't it? know where it came from or how it got to here, but, and I don't know what to do to keep it other than what I'm doing, you know. Well, I think going to 10 meetings a week and being an absolute paragon of fellowship in this program has something to do with it. I think it's almost impossible to be in the fellowship and close to other people without sharing a piece of something that is God within each one of us, that old namaste, you know, the God in me salutes or talks to the God in you, and then we don't have to drink. You know, you've been a good friend, and I love you, and you're just, uh, you're just a big part of my life and my sobriety, and I'm just grateful to be on this journey with you. I really appreciate you doing this interview. Thanks for asking me. I enjoyed it. <laughs>
Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Jerry R., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please leave a rating or review for the show on your podcast app. That'll help others find us. As the number of worldwide listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more people. Of course, you can listen to all of my interviews by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and all other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.